Hi, you are listening to the podcast Inside the Box, Things and People in a Globalized World, produced by the Museum of World Culture and the Center for Critical Heritage Studies at the University of Gothenburg, in collaboration with Folkuniversitetet. Welcome to Inside the Box. Usually we send live from one of our museums, the Museum of World Culture in Gothenburg, but this time we are recording from a distance. Today's episode will focus on the Jade Collection at the Museum of Far Eastern Antiquities in Stockholm, which is one of four museums that are part of the National Museums of World Culture. My guest today is my colleague Michael Lee. He's the curator for the China, Korea and Sven Hedin collections, and he has a background in anthropology and art history. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Helen. Thank you very much for having me. So when we record live, we usually start by picking up an object from our collection out of a wooden box, hence the name of the podcast. But today we will have to do it a little bit differently, like most things nowadays. So Michael, you've chosen to start with a mystery. Tell us. Yes, I thought it would be very interesting, like like he said, to start off with a mystery today. Um, this object is a mystery on a few different levels and uh, you know if we have time maybe we can talk a little bit more about it later um, but there are a few blogs talking about how this may be a space alien um, so that's always fun to start with I think. Let me just add some details before you go on Michael. Um, this object that he's talking about is a small decorative piece I think about 10 centimeters tall and it has a dark green color. I would say to me it looks a bit like a human body with an animal face and it's sitting down. The face looks a bit like a fox or maybe a German shepherd with long pointed ears standing up. So that was it from me. Keep going, Michael. Um, maybe what I can say now is the other mystery the, the, that is also part of the story for this piece is that um, we don't know for sure, first of all, if this is actually an old piece of jade. If we just look at the style of it, um, it is the type of style one would expect for what is called the Hongshan culture that existed in the eastern part of what we know of as China today. Um, and this would have been between 4700 BC to 2900 BC, or we'll say maybe BCE now. Um, but this is also an interesting example of what happens if you take an archaeological object out of context. Um, so the stylistically, like I said, we can say maybe it belongs to the Hongshan culture, but these types of figures, these humanoid types of figures are extremely rare. Um, there's only three other examples known that come from older collections. Um, and they, they're in, they're in uh, collections now including the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge in the UK, uh, the Beijing Palace Museum in China has one, and the Cleveland Art Museum in Ohio in the US also has a similar example. But none of these have been scientifically excavated, so it will always leave that question mark, are these actually from the Hongshan culture? So until we can 
have an excavation that's scientifically documented, this will always be a mystery, but maybe we can talk more about that later. That sounds great. I love starting in a mystery. Yes. Uh, but Michael, let's go back to the bigger mm -hmm. picture. Tell us a little bit more about the Jade Collection, uh, specifically then at the Museum of Far, Far Eastern Antiquities in Stockholm. Mm. Where, where, where did most of the pieces come from and how? You mentioned China, so I guess yes. we'll start there. Yes, absolutely. Um, I guess I'll, I'll also take one further step back because this is it, it, it helps to also understand the context of, of the Museum of Far Eastern Antiquities in, in its early days. Um, you know, the Museum of Far Eastern Antiquities was set up by the Swedish Parliament in 1926. Um, and at that time, there there was a, a large interest in China, Chinese archaeological archaeology. Uh, in Sweden and, and in much of uh, Western Europe uh, at that time, or maybe not so many people were interested, but I think that's when it started to be, become noticed for the first time. What, why um, is that, would you say, just to give us the context? I think a lot of it has to do with the development work that was happening in China, you know, laying the infrastructure for the railroads, laying the infrastructure for telegraphs and electricity. So there's a lot of things being dug up at that time because the you know the 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 ground was was being excavated for for various reasons it could also be for mineral exploration so this is the first time that china chinese archaeology starts to become known on a larger scale for the first time now throughout chinese history you always have people digging things up in fields um from from earlier burials and so forth uh, so there, there has always been an art market within China, uh, and and even a, a more popular art market that existed since at least the 12th century, uh, because that's when you start getting you know connoisseurship manuals and so forth. But if we're talking about elite collecting, even in the Bronze Age, in about 1200 BC, we have a tomb of someone named uh, Fu Hao. Now, Fu Hao was probably one of the most powerful women ever in China. Uh, she was one of the king's most important consorts and had responsibility that were, were that were both military as well as ceremonial and in communicating with the royal ancestors. So in her tomb uh, from around 1200 BC, you even find jades in there that were already a thousand years old from the Neolithic. Let us just do a brief pause here, Michael to explain what the Neolithic period is. Perhaps not everyone is familiar with the term. The Neolithic period is an archeological period which began about 9,000 BCE in the Near East. It's also called the New Stone Age or the last stage of the Stone Age. During this period, more elaborate stone tools were used and resulted in the development of agricultural practices. Also during this period, people started to live a more sedentary life as they lived in more permanent settlements. Okay, back to you, Michael. Keep going. So, so all this stuff was coming out of the earth in China during the early 20th century. And then you combine it with, with a culture that already had some idea of, of collecting in an archaeological past. Um, and then you also throw in a lot of interaction with the West. Uh, and at that time, particularly Sweden, um, 
Yeah, because I was wondering, where does Sweden actually come into this? Mm. Well, this also has a bit to do with the history of the museum. The the first director of the museum, and also the he formed the the foundation collection, you, you can say, uh, of the Museum of Far Eastern Antiquities. His name is Johan Gunnar Andersson. Um, he was originally hired by the China Geological Survey in the 19-teens, uh, starting, uh, looking for for resources uh, for for the for the Chinese government at that time, and then he became incredibly interested in Chinese archaeology, early civilizations, links with the West, for instance. Um, so he, after his work with the China Geological Survey, he set up an agreement between the Chinese government at that time with the Swedish government, to where he can legally excavate and collect materials. Everything would be shipped to Stockholm, cataloged, and then half was returned to China. Uh, so, and in, in, in it's not just about the objects. He actually trained the first generation of Chinese archaeologists um, so to where archaeologists today in China will trace their academic lineage back to Anderson. So he's very well respected for these reasons. So that's one example of how why Swedes were in China. There were it's also other people such as um, Orvar Karlbeck, uh, also a railroad engineer working in China at that time, also became a contributor of objects to the Museum of Far Eastern Antiquities. So a lot of it had to do with the development of China. Um, some of it has to do with missionaries as well, but much of the materials that the missionaries collected actually did not end up at the Museum of Far Eastern Antiquities. A lot of them would have gone to maybe the ethnographic museums, either in Stockholm or Gothenburg. But that just gives you a context of, of why were, why Swedes were in China. Why right. did Chinese material end up in Sweden? But would you say then that this was more of a mutual relationship than maybe other uh, uh, between well, well, Sweden and China, I mean? I think certainly when we talk about the the cooperation that Anderson uh, was working with, I, I would say that is about as equal as as you know a cooperation can get, um, because again he was also working alongside Chinese colleagues as well. But of course, when we're talking about collecting during these times, of course we can always talk about power imbalances and, and and these types of issues. We can always talk about that, of course. But generally speaking, I, you know, I, there are also criticisms, for instance, of the collection from Orvar Karlbeck. Uh, with looting and 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 these types of issues, and, and of course today, you know, museums would look at that as as you know, collecting from the marketplace unprovenanced objects. By today's standards, that's not a good thing. Of course, and museums stay away from that. But during within the context of that time, I think it was um, be, because also some of these collectors, it wasn't about the just the aesthetic beauty of the objects. For instance, they really wanted to try to find out more about the civilization. Uh, how were these things made, under what circumstances, and so forth. So genuine interest in, in Chinese culture. I, I would say, generally speaking, uh, and especially I would say the larger contrib contributors at the Museum of Far Eastern Antiquities. And of course, we have King Gustav VI Adolf. I mean, he, he has contributed so much to the museum collections. And also, it, he you know his collecting was very much of the time. Um, you know, this is the first time in the early 20th century where you had more Western collectors that are actually looking at Asian art, particularly Chinese art, from a more Chinese aesthetic. Because what people in the West were collecting before that was very much export material. So 
I think one of their their interests in collecting was seeing this new material that had never been seen before coming out of China. So I think it also captured a lot of interest uh, due to that. Hmm. All right. So you've told us lots of details about collecting Chinese jade in Sweden from the Swedish perspective. What about the connection to Chinese culture? What would you say is maybe the meaning or significance of jade in Chinese Mm. culture? So we go into depth there as well. Mm. Because it does have a unique position, right? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I think China, I'm sorry, uh, jade, yes, absolutely. It has a very special position within Chinese culture because on the one hand, Jade has monetary value, yes, but when you compare it to gold, gold in traditional Chinese culture, yes, it also has monetary value. But what gold lacks and what jade has is an almost kind of spiritual uh, connection as well. Now, if you look at Chinese history, it, you know they've been producing jades within the today's geopolitical borders of China for about 8,000 years. And I say within the geopolitical borders today because back in the Neolithic, for instance, they, there would have been different cultures. This was before this Chinese identity came to be. Um, but for as, as, as long as, you know, 8,000 years ago, you had some cultures in China working with jade. And jade is a very hard material, very difficult to shape. In fact, you know, when people say jade carvings, they're they're not really carvings because when you carve, it's like if you take a knife to a block of wood and you start, you know, carving chunks away. Jade is very hard, so it must be abraded with um, perhaps different types of sands of of harder minerals. Um, So you can imagine rather than carving a piece of wood with, with a knife, you use sandpaper to shape it. But mm. we're not talking about wood, we're talking about a very hard stone. Uh, you know, if you wanna get scientific, it's about a 6.5 to seven on the most hardness scale. Um, so when you see the production of jades in China during the Neolithic, you start to realize there's a, a high stratification of society. You needed a powerful ruler to start organizing society to say, oh, you and or your family do not have to go you know, produce food anymore. I will make sure you can survive if you produce jades for me or for the ruler or whoever. Um, so that's one interesting kind of uh, sociological implication we can find within some of the first jades in China. And these would have been tools. So at this time, I think jades would have had you know, symbolisms of, of power um, and and some of these sp- more spiritual connections, I think, would be more difficult to, to tease out because at that time we, we don't have writing yet. All we have is evidence from from the the, the burials and and what we can deduce from that. Um, but then I would say by the late Bronze Age, so let's say ah, roughly third century BC, uh, jade starts to become more of a show of wealth. Um, so. Yes, powerful people tended to have wealth, but it wasn't necessarily only the rulers that had access to jade. It, be, it became kind of, again, a, a show of wealth. Um, yes, most likely the elite because they can afford it, but it, it became a little bit less exclusive to power and, and more um, accessible if you had wealth. Uh, until the Han Dynasty, about second, third century, let's say the equivalent of the Roman Empire, we start seeing jades complete jade suits 
um, burials. Wow. Yeah, wow. so where where you have the prints that's completely encased in jade. So we start to see this also association with jade, maybe because of its hardness, maybe because of its greenish color that makes it look like it almost has a life force. But the idea of jade is that it would preserve the body within the tomb. Um, so you, you start getting these these concepts of, of, of protective properties with jade. So, you so know, it's mummy, mummifying by using jade. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. I mean, I, I don't think they were generally so successful, like, for instance, in, in terms of like Egyptian mummification. No, no, like, no, no. I, I think that the bodies tend not to survive, but at least the, the concept was to, to keep in the... But the, the desire, the, desire maybe was that. Exactly, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Because, I mean, you know, you might have heard about the first emperor who, who unified China in 221 BC. He was obsessed with immortality. And sometimes, you know, the, the, the different elixirs, he would have his, his Taoist, uh, alch- you know, people working with, with Taoist alchemy, um, a lot of the, the ingredients for these supposed elixirs of immortality included things like powdered jade as well. Um, but today, I mean, the, this is the thing that, what I think is very interesting. Even today, you know, people still have very special associations with jade. I think on some level, for instance, with the Chinese diaspora, uh, for many, maybe this has come to symbolize a certain type of identity um, but even that this spiritual sense is still, I think, very much alive. Um, I'll give you an example with, with what my, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother used to tell me. She had this Chinese phrase, What does this mean? This means the jade will shatter, but not your bones. So she would always show me this broken um, bangle, this brace, jade bracelet that she had. And she would tell me this story about, you know, she she took a fall one day and look, it was the jade that shattered, not my bone. And th- this was a traditional saying from her village. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, you can look at from a very practical point of view. Um, of course, it's something protecting your arms. So if you fall, that will probably hit first before it actually damages your bone. You can look at it maybe as a, a matador that wears a lot of metal um, you know, religious amulets. So on the one hand, you can look at it from a more spiritual perspective, but on the, the, the other hand, you can look at it from a very practical perspective. It becomes, you know, armor against the, the, the horns of a bull. So I think mm-hmm. in some ways, Jade kind of um, took on, you know, th- where this type of idea continues because also because of practical purposes. Um, and also just growing up, I would also hear stories in my family of, you know, someone's child is not doing well, they might go to a fortune teller and the fortune teller might just prescribe um, a jade amulet of a specific deity to try to protect the child. So I, th- I think, you know, these types of common connotations, it's still very much alive, um, you know, within uh, a lot of uh, Chinese culture, I would say even around the world, again, we're talking about the Chinese diaspora. So w- would you say these childhood stories that you heard, is that kind of where your own interest in jade originates from? Well, kind of. I mean, you know, these are just stories I, I heard growing up. And I, I guess, you know, for, for the audience, uh, uh, it, it's complicated. But if I had to give myself a, a, a simple identity, I would say Chinese-American, um, just to, to give you an idea of where I'm coming from. Um, but uh, so it comes from that. But also, I remember, I mean, when I was a child, my dad would take me to museums. And I think that's where my love of museums and, and working with collections come from. 
Um, you know, I remember some of the, the, the first exhibitions I saw, and this would have been at the, the Houston Museum of Fine Arts. Um, I remember in the probably it was somewhere in the late later 80s, the you know, China started opening up for the first time and there was the first emperor exhibition. Um, and but I also remember seeing exhibitions about, for instance, you know, the, the kingdom of Benin in Africa. And it was really in that museum that gave me this again, the passion for museums. But, you know, I was also, you know, that museum also gave me a strong interest in West African material culture. Um, but at some point, you kind of have to choose what direction you want to go to. And since I, I felt like I had a deeper cultural background to begin with, to work with uh, you know, East Asian materials, I, I decided to go along those lines. But there was also an object that was passed down in my family that, that kind of contributed to my thinking process, really. Um, and of course, it was a piece of jade. Now, this would have come down from my paternal grandmother's side. And what is it? it it's a it's a jade plaque, kind of rectangular piece, maybe something like I don't know, 15 centimeters wide by by 10 centimeters uh, in, in length. But essentially, this jade was carved in the shape of a traditional lock. It, it's actually very similar to one of these old Swedish locks. I don't know if you've seen where you have like a long flat key that kind of bends at the end with, with the teeth and then you have to push it through to open the lock. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it's the same type of mechanism. But the idea for this type of lock, it was, you know, be hung around the, um, the neck of a child uh, to lock in the soul. So essentially, you know, in, 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 you know, a hundred years ago, obviously all around the world, um, it was quite high infant mortality rates. So this is one way in which the, the, the parents would try to, you know, uh, wish the best for the child. Um, so th this is what the piece was. And I remember just, just looking at it kind of, you know, for me, it gave that kind of personal connection with my own family. Um, and just kind of looking at the carving, I mean, even qualities like, like this glassy sheen that the jade have. I mean, I remember these kind of little details. Um, so I guess, yes, that this object was quite, quite special to me because, like I said, it really helped my thinking process in terms of what do I want to study in the future? Um, and and it, it really kind of just captivated my interest from this piece. That's uh, such so, a beautiful story, Michael. Mm, <laughs> yeah. And and I, I know that now you actually proposed an entire exhibition on the theme of jade at the Museum of Far East and Antiquities. Um, so going from the personal, uh, in what way do you think that this theme would be of interest to the wider audience? Mm -hmm. So, yes, um, I, I guess the idea, the, the idea is that um, maybe this could be an exhibition, possibly even a traveling exhibition. But I think... Jade, regardless of whether or not people know exactly what it is, what it is I think there's some type of maybe the sense of mystery just because of how it's often used within popular culture. So I think that's always a good starting point. You know, what is this thing that people may have heard a lot about and, and it has some relation with, with Asia, something maybe very special. So I think that, that again, that, that's a good topic to talk about, but also our jade collections. Really, it's an incredible, incredible collection. 
Um, it, again, it's some of the the earlier jades that would have uh, you know come to Europe, especially some of these archaic jades. So I would say you know the the jade collection is particularly strong in the early jades. So we're talking about Neolithic jades all the way up to maybe. Uh, Han Dynasty, so up to maybe the 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 two hundreds or the, the the even maybe the three hundreds, um, and for instance, you know, if, if we want to make comparisons, you know, the, the, don't don't get me wrong, the British Museum has a wonderful collection of jades, but I would say, you know, com- compared to that collection, we, we we still have such a strong collection, particularly of the earlier jades. Uh, you know, each collection is unique; will have its its own unique aspects. But again, just to give you a perspective, the collection really is on an international scale. Um, so to be able to share that with the public and to show some of these wonderful, wonderful objects that people today still might connect to, um, you know, I, I, I hope that that would be interesting for people to, to learn about. And, and again, just to, to expose what we have in the collections that may not have been um, displayed for a generation or perhaps even more. Because um, we have so many collections within storage that there, there are so much research that can be done on them, but just people haven't had the time or... Or, or the match to actually look at them yet. So this is one of these collections I hope to address during this project. Yeah, and I think uh, if only a fraction of your animated interest that comes through right now and comes through in uh, in the exhibition, it'll be it'll be hit. <laughs> oh, thank you. I <laughs> but, hope so. I hope so. <laughs> but you mentioned a mystery yet again. So mm-hmm. let's in this final final part of the episode, let's go back to the mystery in which you started. Uh, oh, tell us more about that piece and if there were another or a few other pieces that you wanted to share uh, a little bit more. You also promised some details on, um, on where yes. to find more okay. information, right? So yes, that absolutely. will be our final part. Mm. So, okay, to continue with the mystery of this piece. So I'll just quickly describe it. Um, it's You can see it's a humanoid figure. It has two arms, two legs, a head. But what's also interesting is that it almost has animal-like features. Sticking out from the top of its head are what look to be four horns. Um, one of the horns is has has been broken off at some point in the past, and this is important because uh, for what I'm about to tell you a little bit later. Uh, but also, it has two almost kind of animal-like ears, maybe maybe bovine or cow-like ears, you can say. Um, one of them also slightly broken. Um, and the whole piece is quite smooth. Uh, you don't see so many details. Uh, you don't see, like, for instance, eyes or, or a mouth. You see kind of a, a general shape of a snout. It's, again, polished very smooth. And it has two legs. Now, if you compare this piece with the other three pieces in, in um, well-known collections, you see that the piece at the Museum of Forest Antiquities is also missing its legs. Now, what's interesting is that if you look at also the other three pieces, they actually do have more detail with the eyes carved in more of the, you see more of the mouth, you see the fingers, you see the feet and so forth. If you look at ours, even the parts where it's been broken off, it's been polished smooth. So at some point after it was made, someone decided to polish it very smooth, to polish out the brakes in a very smooth way and 
polish it so smooth that you even lose the details with the eyes and and and, and the mouth and so forth. Um, so first of all, I mean, the question is, why, if this is an old piece from the 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 Hongshan culture, why did it go through this polishing um, stage after it was apparently already made into something? So there could be very re various reasons for that. Maybe because it was broken, they decided that oh, it, it we need to kind of make it look better, polish it up, smooth it up. That that could be a reason. Um, and also, if you look at the surface of it, you do see encrustations on the surface. And of course, it would need deeper scientific analysis to say for sure. But at least just by my own kind of examination of, of it on a, on a very basic visual, uh, yes, I did use a, a, a loop that, that magnified it. But it, 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 it looks, I hesitate to say this, but I'll say it looks like it could be genuine uh, crystalline growth on on some of this encrustation. Not to say that perhaps something like this could be could be faked. I don't know, but again, these are just mysteries. And I hope um, you know there's there's different directions we can also go with this uh, exhibition project if we can also do some scientific analysis because this isn't the only mystery piece we have in the collections. You know, I have a few others in mind, but if we can put these through non-destructive scientific analysis then maybe we can get even more information from them. Um, of course, we'll never know as much as if they were scientifically excavated, but maybe we can come one step closer at least. Um, Exciting, yeah. Mm, mm, yeah. <laughs> Another interesting piece, a quite significant piece I would like to talk about is also um, what's called a B disc, uh, a B. Um, now, what is a B? Imagine a round disc. Um, it could be of varying sizes, but I guess the, the object I'm talking about now is roughly maybe 20 centimeters in, in diameter. So imagine a, a round disc with a hole cut out in the middle. This is a, essentially what we would call a B disc. Now, the name was attributed to this type of ritual object during the Han Dynasty. So again, let, let us think the equivalent, rough equivalent of the Roman Empire. Um, but this type of shape existed since the Neolithic period. Now, we have in the Han Dynasty sources written that the, the B-disc, because of you know, the, the, the roundness, represented the heavens. Um, but we don't know exactly what this meant during the Neolithic, of, of, because there was no writing at that point, obviously. Uh, so we can only say this is what it meant during the Han Dynasty. There was a connection to the shape made during the Neolithic, but we don't know exactly what it means during the Neolithic. But by the Han Dynasty, we know that jades were meant to protect the body, at least in burial. Probably, we can assume maybe during life as well, but certainly during burial. But What's so okay on this disc? You have um, a lot of small kind of nodules that come up that are evenly spaced, so you get a textured surface on the disc. But what's also very special about this particular B disc is that on top of the disc you have two dragons that are kind of in in S shapes. Um, they're surrounded by what might be clouds, but they're they're facing each other on top of the disc. This type of bead disc with the carvings of the dragons on top is 
usually found in high-ranking tombs uh, of of elites or even um, members of the the old royal family during that time. So although this object, we don't have the archaeological context through other excavations, we can learn something about it and say that quite possibly this would have either belonged to the royal family or maybe given as a gift to a high-ranking, uh, perhaps a noble or, or other high-ranking officer um, by the family, uh, perhaps by, by the, the emperor himself, perhaps. Um, but what's, what adds another layer of interest, you know, we talk about this, this was not excavated uh, under scientific um, situations. But that doesn't mean that this is a recent piece that left the ground. What fascinated me when I saw this piece, when I when I actually had an opportunity to handle, is this disc is about one centimeter uh, thick, roughly one centimeter thick. And you see all around the edges, beautiful, beautiful calligraphy that's been etched onto the side in, oh, wow. um, in, in an archaic stick bronze script. Now, this this inscription is not contemporary to the piece. It was an inscription that we can associate with the Qianlong Emperor uh, of the Qing Dynasty, which is the last dynasty in China. Um, and his reign was between 1735 and 1796. Now, so what do you think? What was that added later, you think? Do you know? Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. The Qianlong Emperor was a huge supporter of the arts. Um, he, he commissioned... You know the the creation of decorative objects, uh, you know carvings, paintings. Uh, you know it was a very kind of um, uh, I guess you can say luxurious time uh, within the court in China at that time. But he was also a huge collector of antiquities. In traditional, you know, scholars in traditional China they they like to collect, even if they weren't real old objects, they would like to collect objects that would have older shapes or somehow evoke antiquity. But of course, the emperor, I mean, he, he can acquire anything he wants. So he he's, he was, I guess, he was known for, and maybe depending on your point of view, some people say infamous for uh, putting his own marks on antiquities. He would often compose poems uh, about specific pieces that he loved, and then they would be carved onto the porcelain or onto the jade. Uh, he would add inscriptions onto ancient uh, paintings and so forth. Um, so this is probably what happened in this case. Now, I also have to acknowledge um, a fellow uh, curator working at the uh, Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, uh, Dr. James Lynn. He has been working with me to go through some of our jade collections. And he actually went to the uh, Palace Museum in Taipei, Taiwan to look through their records and archives. And he actually found the exact poem um, that is inscribed onto this B disc. Um, so I think his next step, he wants to try to actually find the order or the commission uh, for its inscription, but you know, th again, there are, there are many layers of the story, and and mm -hmm. we'll keep digging. We'll keep digging. We're and also I, gonna... <laughs> and I oh. think you could talk about this forever, Michael. Yes, sorry. <laughs> no, your interest is genuine for sure, and your expertise is very, very deep. I must say, but I think we have to round up the the pod, uh, the episode, Michael. 
Oh, th- okay. But I, I yeah. would just, you know, I, I would, again, I would say the Museum of Forest Gen, because all of our museums are real, real treasures. Please uh, for sure, for take sure. the time to come to our collections to check them out. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Michael. Thank you for having me. Thank you.